Before we start today's episode, I want to plug a nonprofit that is very important to our guest. It is called Fent Check. They distribute fentanyl strips and Narcan to bars. The strips go in the bathroom so that people can test their drugs if they're doing them, and the Narcan goes behind the bar in case a patron accidentally overdoses on fentanyl. They are always looking for donations and volunteers in the Bay Area, Philadelphia, and New York. And you can check them out at www.fentcheck.org. Do you have an unexpected story to tell or know someone who does? We'd love to have you on the pod. Please apply at please don't tell anyone pod at gmail.com or follow our application link in bio of our Instagram, please don't tell anyone pod or TikTok account. So finally, I pick up the phone and I'm like, hey, what's up? And it's my next door neighbor. And he is like, hey, the police are at your house. And he goes, hold on. He goes, no, that's the FBI. Hey, and thanks for coming back to Please Don't Tell Anyone. I'm Molly Clark, your host, and this is the podcast where you hear unexpected stories by ordinary people. I go on blind to all my interviews so that I can hear the story firsthand, just like you. Please don't tell anyone. I said, please don't tell anyone. Don't tell I said, please don't tell anyone. Please don't tell anyone. Don't tell I said, please don't tell anyone. I said, please don't tell anyone. Don't tell Begin, My name is blank. We're going to leave that out. I'm 33. I'm from Seattle and now live in Oakland. Six months after my 18th birthday, I got in a car accident that ended with me being criminally prosecuted. It changed the course of my life in unimaginable ways that still affect me to this day. Please don't tell anyone. I mean, right away that stood out to me, right? Because that's so raw. And at 18, that's very different than really any other age because you're at the most crucial point in your life of kind of this turning point. So when I read that, I didn't know what to think opening this chat today. I wasn't sure if I was going to see you in a wheelchair. I wasn't sure, like, if you were paralyzed. I wasn't sure if you were on the other side of it and, you know, someone else was affected. And so I'll just let you tell your story. I think to kind of, like, preface before the car accident, it's kind of important to know how things were for me growing up and everything like that. I grew up in... An area of Seattle called Ballard. It's where most of like the commercial fishermen and longshoremen live. So you kind of have this situation where there's a lot of people living there who either grew up poor or grew up in families that were very low income working class in general. And they just kind of, you know, they caught a lucky break. They made a bunch of money. And then they had kids and a lot of the habits, a lot of the things from their old lives have kind of carried over. So like, you know, I had friends that we were picking up for school in high school who we'd walk in and they'd be in a multi-million dollar house and the mom would be doing lines of coke and drinking Coors Light at night in the morning. So it's this weird dynamic where it was an interesting mix of people. I grew up in an upper middle class family. My dad's a lawyer. My mom's a librarian. You know, we weren't ever super wealthy, but we had everything we needed growing up. And it was a pretty nice life. Did you have siblings? Yeah, I have one sister and uh, older. So, you know, she went off to high school. We were four years apart. She was graduating high school and I was going in. And when she was in high school, they sent her to like an all-girls private Catholic high school But on the weekend, she was hanging out with all the kids that went to the public school in our neighborhood. And so that was kind of my first introduction to the people in our neighborhood. And 
you know, I was meeting these people that were graffiti artists and drug dealers. And she was taking me to parties when she was supposed to be babysitting me when I was 12 years old. And they were like getting me drunk and, you know, anyway. So growing up, it was kind of this weird dichotomy where on one hand, I was always in private Catholic schools and I was around kids like that. But then on the other side of things... Most of my friends were from the same school that were where my sister's friends were from. And so it was like this kind of weird double life situation. So, you know, I got through high school. I got into a four-year university that's in my hometown. And I mean, at this point, I had kind of already been getting in trouble, little things like, you know, getting caught with weed by my parents or whatever. And they desperately wanted me to leave Seattle. And I just wanted to stay. All my friends were there. And I mean, part of that also goes back to the fact that very recently I found out that I'm actually on the autism spectrum. And my entire lifetime, I had a really hard time relating to like a lot of people. It was really hard for me to make friends. The friends that I did have were like, you know, my best closest friends that I didn't want to be separated from. So I decided to stay. I go to college. That must have also been hard, by the way, not knowing you were on the autism spectrum that young and feeling different. And, you know, if only you had been diagnosed earlier, maybe that could have yeah, answered totally. some. The thing that was really, like, interesting about it is that, like, looking back, there were, like, these moments. You know, we'd be in a restaurant and I'd be, like, ordering food. My mom would be like, look at the waiter when you're ordering food. Mm-hmm. And I, like, hated eye contact and I never understood why I didn't like it. And it was just, Yeah. And so, you know, so I decided I wanted to stay in Seattle. I wanted to be near my friends. So I go to the school and I kind of immediately, I'm from the area. A bunch of the other kids aren't. I know where to get things. So I kind of become like the go-to person to get drugs on campus and everything like that. All different kinds of drugs, not just weed. Oh, yeah. Which that'll come into the story later as well. But uh, so, yeah, so I, I make this group of friends. We're like having a great time. At this point, I did not have a car. Well, I did have a car, but it was at my parents' house. They didn't think it was a great idea for me to have a car on campus at the college because I was staying on campus so that I could actually have a social life. So one night, my dad is down there, and I was supposed to have a date that night. And so I I asked my dad, can I borrow your car for the night I have a date? And he said, sure. This is... October of 2007. So he's like, yeah, take my car, whatever. Like, just bring it back tomorrow. It's fine. So I'm getting ready for my date. And then I get a call and it's from her and she cancels the date. Whatever. I have the car for the night. So I call one of my friends that goes to another college in Seattle and uh, asked him what he was doing. He went to a bigger public college and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to a couple parties tonight, like whatever. And I said, cool, do you want to, is it cool if I come over and hang out? And he said, sure. And so I asked a couple of my friends that I went to school with if they wanted to come with me. And they said, sure. And then a couple of friends from my old neighborhood called me and they said, hey, we're in the area. Do you want to hang out? And I said, sure. And so at this point, I had a full car. So it was me plus four people. We all pile into the car Mazda Tribute, like an SUV. We go over to the college. I'm planning on sleeping there. So we start hanging out. And then I drank, I mean, less than like a half of a 40. And before I drink anymore, one of my friends says to me, 
hey, I need to go home tonight. And so I just stopped drinking because mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. if there's one thing that's been hammered into my head, it's that you don't drive drunk. Yeah. So I, I stopped drinking. I'm like, fine. We hang out for a little bit longer and then I like start thinking about it. And I'm like, mm, I don't really want to be like driving around at three in the morning. So I'm like, hey, I'm just going to take everyone home now and then I'll come back here and we can hang out and party then. But for now, I need to like get everyone home while I'm sober. So we all pile into the car. I decide that the first people I'm going to take home are the people from my old neighborhood because they're the furthest away. And then everyone else is pretty much sequentially like on the way back to the college. And so we get on the freeway, we get off the freeway, and we stop at McDonald's. My friend wanted a McFlurry. He's like eating his McFlurry. And we're all just kind of being like shitty teenagers. We're like yelling out the window at people and like just being idiots. And he tosses his McFlurry out the window at one point and it hits a car. And the car it hits is this car of this guy that is part of this group of kids in Ballard who are pretty much very well known for number one being gang related number two they're like big Samoan guys that just like will show up at parties and just like knock people out they've put people in the hospital it's been like a big thing and so he hits the car and I'm like I look over I see who it is and I'm like oh fuck so you knew this guy you had encountered him before the big Samoan guy yeah and like We'd always been, like, fine with them because we didn't, we like, we were kind of the people that would just stand back and watch things happen at parties. But, like, you know, it's one of those things that if you do something that, like, causes a problem, then, like, all, you know, all of a sudden it's a problem. Yeah, if you throw a McFlurry, and, uh, it's going to be a problem. Uh, yeah. So, hits his car, and so I'm like, ah, oh, shit. And he's, like, yelling out the window, and I'm just like, oh, God. So I, like, I take off, and... He is racing and following us. So we get up to where, like, basically the first right turn is. And he is in the right lane. I'm in the left lane. And we're going, I mean, probably like 60 or 70 on a surface street. I slam on my brakes and I turn right and he keeps going straight. And so we're like in the clear. We're good. We're like going down the side street. Everyone's happy. We and I'm sure it's not this. like a calm car. I'm sure everyone was like, <laughs> yeah, going crazy. Like, yeah, like just losing it. We get up to this intersection and it has a yield sign and it's like midnight. I get up towards the yield sign. I look for headlights. And I don't see headlights either way. And so I keep going through the yield sign. And then this minivan Mm. comes right in front of me. No headlights on. I slam into the side of it. And that's the last thing I remember. And then I come to and I like look around. The car is all fucked up. I like get out of the car. And, you know, because my dad's a lawyer, (laughs) first thing I do is I called him and then I said, Dad, I got in a really bad accident, and I can't hear him, and I'm, like, trying to figure out what's going on, and I pull the phone away from my face, and it's covered in blood. Mm -hmm. Like, just everything is, yeah. Were you standing up? You had gotten yourself out of the vehicle. Yeah, I was standing up, and so, But you hadn't, like, assessed the situation yet. You had just called your dad. No, no. Yeah. So, 
it's just like so, soaked in blood and then like I feel my forehead because it hurts and I'm like pulling it down just like another handful of blood and I'm just like shit and so then I like wipe the phone off and I put it on the other side of my head and I'm like hey you know I'm by this park can you come down here and so he's sure I'm on the way what I didn't know at this time was that one of the people that was with me had a backpack full of beer in the trunk so when we crashed that exploded everywhere. At this point, we're starting to realize that there are like some kind of serious injuries. No one is on the verge of dying, but people need to go to the hospital. So they pull the girl that's sitting in the middle seat. This is back before the middle seats generally had shoulder straps. It was a lap belt. They pulled mm -hmm. her out. I just remember looking over and she's she was like laying on some grass next to the car screaming and one of my other friends is kind of like wandering around just like completely out of it I kind of black out at that point and I come to on the back of the ambulance and I'm talking to this cop and he says well your car reeks of beer and I said, you know, I, I didn't I didn't really drink tonight. You know, I, I was with other people. Someone must have had beer. I don't know. And he said, okay, well, you know, we have to take you to the hospital. We go to the hospital and we're all in the same emergency room in different areas getting worked on. Your entire and car. Can, yeah, my entire car. And I don't know what's going on with the other car at this mm -hmm. point. So I can, like, hear her screaming. Like, I can hear one of my other friends, like, talking to them and, like, crying. And he's, like, a pretty tough guy. And so I was, like, you know, getting pretty freaked out. There's a cop standing next to my bed, bed being, like, well, you're going to jail after this. Like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just, like, what the fuck is going on? On the outside of all of this going on, my dad is now in the emergency room. The prosecutor for traffic related offenses in Seattle is already there and my dad is trying to get back to see me the police won't let him back to see me she's saying well you can visit him in prison you don't get to talk to him right now the cops are like sitting there talking shit to me they're like oh they're gonna love you and they're like blah 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 little the little white boy and so at that point I just like flip out I don't remember exactly what I said but I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna kill myself and that kind of doesn't get addressed at that time they stitch up my forehead they handcuff me they're leading me to a cop car they get me into the cop car we're about to leave the hospital and this nurse runs out in front of the cop car, like, stop. And the cop's like, what? What's going on? And she's like, he said he was going to kill himself. We can't let him leave the hospital. And so they pull me out of the cop car. They unhandcuff me and they put me in the psych ward. I'm in the psych ward for two days. And, you know, they're like feeding me a bunch of Valium and all sorts of shit. But at the end of the two days... They were like, well, we've assessed and decided that you're not a threat to yourself, so we're going to release you. And I guess they were supposed to release me to the police. Instead, they released me to my parents and just, like, let me go home. At this point, my dad talks to one of his friends who handles this kind of law. He's like, yeah, I'll handle the case, you know, not free, but significantly cheaper than would have been. And... 
So, and he's like, but, you know, we have to see if they're going to charge this. We don't even know if it's going to get charged, whatever. At this point, like, more information starts coming out about the other car. It is mother and her two kids who are both under the age of 10 years old. Like, literally the yeah, worst. Yeah, and, like, not only that, but, like, I, you know, listen, I don't want to tell people how to parent, but, like, what the fuck are you doing driving kids around at, like, past midnight in a car with no headlights? To be clear, are her and her children okay? Yeah, yeah. One of the kids sustained like a little cut under their eye no one was severely injured no broken bones in that car okay. in my car the person in the front seat broke his left collarbone the person in the back seat on the right behind the passenger seat got a concussion the girl in the middle seat broke two of her vertebrae and the person behind me broke his arm because he put out his arm like that when we crashed and it, and it broke. So pretty severe injuries. And so, you know, I'm working with the insurance company. I'm saying, listen, I don't want you to fight them on this. I want you to compensate everyone fairly because like, you know, this was an accident. But at the same time, like these people deserve to have their needs taken care of. Almost a year goes by. and. They have a year to file charges. And I think like 11 months went by and I get a letter in the mail saying that they're filing charges. At this point, I'm 19. Them, people in your car or the other car? Oh, the state has decided to file charges, like criminal charges. So I, you know, I get this letter, but I'm still trying to maintain some normalcy in life. At this point, I have dropped out of college because I am now at this point having severe panic attacks all of the time. I can't get my homework done. I can't get anything done. I started going to community college at this point and was just like kind of trying to get general ed classes out of the way. Still hanging out with my friends. And this one night, like me and my friends are out. We get back to my house. I had smoked some weed when we were at my house. Um, my friend wanted to go see one of our other friends. I said... Well, I can't drive. And he said, that's fine. I can drive. I'm, I'm fine to drive. I said, okay. So we got into my car, drive into my friend's house. He almost runs red light, almost hits the cop. We get pulled over. When we get pulled over, they immediately arrest him because he apparently, like, they had him out of the car talking to him and he dropped, like, a bag of Xanax on the ground or something just ridiculous. And then they come to me and they're like, hey, we need to, like, see if you can drive, like, or, do you have a license, everything like that. I was like, yeah, I have a license. I give it to them. They run it and they said, you have a warrant out for your arrest. And I said, what? And they said, yeah, you have a bench warrant out for your arrest. Sometimes when they file charges against someone, they put a warrant out so that if you have contact with the police, you go to jail. And so I get arrested. I go to jail. I get booked in. I have a bail hearing the next day. They set my bail at a quarter million dollars. Why? Because they had decided that between the original incident and the fact that I was still out doing shit, that I was a danger to the community. Then why didn't they come find you in that gap? If you're such a danger, why didn't they come get you? Well, because what it really came down to is that 
this specific prosecutor was trying to make her career and has since there there have since been a lot of a lot of people that have come out and basically said the same thing that I will say which is that the charges that I ended up with were incredibly overreaching they were oh I mean she overcharged the hell out of it and basically put me in a position where I didn't have a choice and she did the same thing to a lot of other people. So they set my bail at a quarter million dollars. I go back into jail and they have like a, basically like a person that you talk to in jail that kind of assesses your mental health, how much of a danger you are to other inmates, things like that, and decides like where you should be in the jail, whether someone needs to bail you out because you're not going to be safe there, things like that. I talked to her and she says, well, who would be paying your bail? And I said, well, I mean, I don't think it's possible, but it would be my parents. So she says, okay, give me their number. She calls them and she says, look, I need, you need to get your son out of here. He is mentally struggling. I think he is a danger to himself. I don't want to say that to anyone else in here or else he's going to end up in a room with no clothes under 24-hour observation. Why did she think you were a danger to yourself? I mean, I was distraught. You know, the entire time that this is going on, too, every single time there is any contact with this prosecutor, which there was the bail hearing, and she had kind of been talking to other people in the legal community that my dad knows. I mean, she was basically telling them that she was going to crucify me. It's my first time in jail also, and so I'm just, like, really freaked out. And, you know, so she... Tells my parents this. My parents go to a bail bonds place. They said, yeah, we can do it for, I think it was like 3%, which is, it's still a decent amount of money, but it's not a quarter million dollars. Yeah, no, it's a few thousand, right? Yeah. And so they bail me out. And then there is like another hearing right after I get bailed out where the the prosecutor has base is like pissed that I've been bailed out. And there's another hearing. I think it was my pro se, which is like basically the hearing you go to before your actual trial or anything starts. Mm -hmm. And we go to that. She makes an argument that I am a danger to the community that I should not be out on bail. I get remanded. And what does remand? What does remanded mean? So remanded means that they take away your bail. You don't have a bail anymore. You can't get bailed out. You are do they, in jail. Do you still have to pay back the bail bonds that you've gotten a loan from? So the way the way bail bonds work generally is that they require a certain amount of money from you. Yeah. You give them that money. They pay the whole amount. Yeah. When you either get sentenced and go back to jail or, you know, you get proven not guilty, the jail gives them back all of the money, but they keep the money that you gave them. Got it. So always the jail pays back the bond place, not you. Yeah, well, yeah, except if you go on the run, that's why bounty hunters exist, because the bail bondsmen don't get any of their money back, and then they're out, like, 250 grand while you're, like, you know, in the wind in Mexico or, like, wherever the hell you are. 
Got it. Got it. So, but either way, yeah. if someone go- just because now this is education for me, even if so, if someone goes to jail, like for to prison, or if they are innocent, it is the jail that is paying back the bond place, not the person who asked for the bail bond. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, correct, correct. Fun yeah. fact. So, but they keep the original. They keep money what you, you had in. to get. So they probably love people with high bail bonds because yep. yep. then they get paid. Up oh, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So yeah, I get remanded. They take me directly from the courtroom back to jail. A couple days after that, my attorney files a motion for me to be transferred to work release, and I have to go to a separate court hearing for that. I go to that court hearing, and at at this point too, like I should be clear, it's like not clear exactly what my charges are. I was told I was being charged with a vehicular assault, but that was pretty much all I knew. So he files a motion for work release. I go back. We have this back and forth. The prosecutor is fighting it tooth and nail. The judge says, this is an 18 year old kid. He's never been in serious trouble before. Like, I think that's fine, but you know, there's a waiting list. So we don't know how long it's going to be. Then after that, like a couple months go by and, you and know, you're in jail for this head. couple months. Yeah, I'm in jail oh and I'm talking and I'm talking back and forth with my friends and my family on the phone and I'm just kind of like getting into this routine where I'm like working out and I'm learning how to make decent tasting food out of like commissary items so you can get money on your account when you're in jail and you can buy chips and like summer sausages and all sorts of stuff like that and then, you know, there are like different things you can do with them to like make things that kind of taste like tamales or burritos mm-hmm. or like well, whatever. And so my lawyer then, you know, gets a hold of the jail, says, I need to meet with my client. They call me down. I go into a room with him and he says, Okay, so this is what we're looking at. He said, You're being charged with vehicular assault by intoxication, which is a class B violent felony. You're going to have a strike on your record. And basically what the prosecutor has said is that you can either agree to take this one count or she will charge you as seven counts for every single person in the car that is not you. And she will go after the maximum penalty, which is seven years in prison. I'm like looking at him. So am I going to have to go to prison? What's going on? And he said, well... The mandatory minimum for this is one year. And if it's anything that is a year or less, you are in county jail. If it's anything from a year and a day past that, you're going to prison. And I said, okay. And he said, we're going to try it for a year. And this was with the first deal? Yes. So basically, another two months go by. I get accepted into work release. And work release is basically you sleep in jail and then you go out during the day you look for a job and then you come back at night and you go back to jail i find a job fairly quickly because at this point i had been working at a friend of my dad's law firm as like a file clerk already Mm -hmm. and so i called him and he was like yeah it's fine like you can come back and work here so then i'm out like five days a week for like four or five hours a day at this law firm, like doing filing. And then once I'm done, I take the bus back to jail. I do that. And the trial is still going on. Like negotiations are going on. All this is going on. 
Finally, she's like a prosecutor. She's like, we'll do one count of vehicular assault by intoxication. It's going to be a violent felony. You will have a strike on your record. If you get two more, it's life in prison. And that's that. And so, like, while this is going on, too, the smartest thing my lawyer did is that he never fought to get me out while all of this was happening because while all of this is happening, I'm racking up time. And so, you know, I have, like, four or five months down already. And so he keeps, like, pushing it out, continuances, pushing it out, continuances, all this stuff. And then while all of this is happening, my mental health is getting way worse. Yeah. Basically, it comes down to sentencing day, and I have, like, less than a month left in what would be a year sentence at that point. Mm -hmm. And I get sentenced. The judge says, I'm giving you credit for time served. You're done. Did they breathalyze you that night? I got a blood test done. I had a .02 blood alcohol level. So, but they considered that intoxicated. I was under 21. Oh, shit. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Zero, zero tolerance. So, yeah. yeah. So, but now I have a felony and 20 years old. Prior to working at my dad's friend's law firm, I worked as a dishwasher in some kitchens at restaurants. And, you know, I kind of knew that was an industry you could get into where there aren't background checks. You can kind of just do whatever you want. Yeah. And so I I got into culinary school. I went to culinary school. While that is happening outside of school, number one, working in a restaurant that has no shift drink policies. So they are just giving us drinks through our entire shift. I'm working with a chef that is very addicted to cocaine. And me and him are just doing tons of coke together. It is at this point that I find out that our dishwasher is supplying the coke to my chef and that the dishwasher's brother is basically the lead man for a cartel that has things set up in Washington. And at this point, I am mental health-wise spiraling. I am not making enough money at work. I I see where this is going, by the way. Yep. They say when, when your mental health is low to join the cartel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, uh, I'm i not making enough money at work. I've moved out of my parents' house at this point. I'm living at one of my friend's houses paying rent. And so, I start selling for him. And I'm, you know, it starts off with, you know, I'm getting an ounce every two weeks. And then from an ounce every two weeks, it goes to, you know, an ounce every couple of days. And then before I know it, I'm selling probably about a half pound of Coke every day. And, I mean... Getting really far up there. I mean, it got to the point where I was making anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand dollars a week. Uh, oh my god! Yeah, it was. You, I hate to say this, but like, it sounds like you're a very good salesman. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's just if also this like, were any other product and you had that level of sales, that'd be insane. Yeah, but no other product sells itself like that does. I mean, That's it's probably true. yeah. And on top of that, like, I'm back in Ballard and. Ballard is very well known for just being full of cokeheads because if you work on the longshore, mm-hmm. you get drug tested randomly and all the time and coke stays in your system for like three days. So all of the people that work on the longshore, they're making $100,000, $200,000 a year. They can't smoke weed. They can't do really any other drugs. So they just do tons of coke and they drink all the time. So it's like 
very easy to sell this. I kind of get to the point though, where I'm like just selling it to other dealers and I'm mm. like not dealing with customers anymore. Wait, so just um, another education for me, not in the drug dealing space or the bail bond sure. space. So like if you have the cartel and they have all of the drugs in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And then they give their loot to the guy, the dishwasher's brother. And then is he selling to you or he's giving some to you and going to say, I'm going to take a percentage once you sell yours? So I actually refused to take fronts from them because I didn't want to end up dead. Back then it was like very cheap too. Like I was getting ounces of Coke for like $400. And it's like, I think last time I talked to someone about it, there it's like $1,300 now. And, and then so- you were upcharging it? Yeah, well, I mean, I was getting it for $400 an ounce. There's 28 grams in an ounce. I was selling every gram for $40. So, yeah, it, you know, you make pretty much a little over double your money on an ounce. I just couldn't then- be a drug dealer because of the math. I would just completely fuck myself. Sorry, I'm just really fascinated this for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go so then it. you would sell to another dealer versus the customer. Why? So the reason that I started doing that is because you're making contact with less people. Okay. And because those people have more to lose than a customer does. If a customer gets caught with like a gram of Coke, they'll turn around and rat you out because if it mm. keeps them from getting a six month jail sentence, you know, they, they don't care. If a dealer does that, number one, no one's ever going to sell drugs to them ever again. And number yeah. two, probably the person who I'm getting it from is going to find them while I'm in jail, and it's not going to be good. Those of you out there listening who want to start a, a drug selling business, now you know. Yeah. So at this point, yeah, m- mental health is in the toilet. Mm-hmm. I'm drinking, doing tons of coke all the time. And the problem with doing those two together is that you never really realize how drunk you are. Yeah. So one day I get off work, I'd already done about an eight ball at work. I'm like hanging out with this girl that I've been seeing. We're like having a great time. I drop her off at her house. I pick some of my friends up. I have like five ounces of Coke in my trunk. I go drop it off to one of my friends who's buying it from me. We start heading towards another party. I've had a couple drinks at work. Didn't really think I was drunk. We're headed down to this party. I had a taillight out. I get pulled over. Cop walks up to the car. It is the cop who arrested me on the back of the ambulance at the car accident. Oh my God. So he's like, ah, yeah, I recognize you. And I'm just like, like you know okay here it goes and so he he's like talking to everyone else in the car and he's like has he been drinking and everyone's like no and he's like well i want you to su- uh, submit to a roadside sobriety test had he done a speed gun on how fast you were going or he just said reckless drive okay. no he just he had a suspicion i was drinking he after the last thing just wasn't willing to let me go yeah. He takes me down to the police station. He sits me down and he said, okay, well, here's the deal. Because of the stipulations of your last case and your probation, you are not allowed to deny a breathalyzer. 
So you can either do this breathalyzer or I will take you to the hospital right now and we'll get your blood drawn. And I knew that if I got my blood drawn, it was going to be a way bigger issue than drinking because I'd been doing a shitload of coke. And uh, so I said, okay. Is, was that legal what he was saying? It's iffy. And I mean, but it was kind of one of those things that because In the moment. of, well, and because of my previous charge, it's one of those things that there are a lot of judges that whether what he was doing was illegal or not, they wouldn't care. They wouldn't yeah. throw out the case based on that. So I do the breathalyzer test and I blow a 0.24. I am three times the legal limit. You hate to see it. Yeah. So I go to jail. This time, I go to my first court date for bail setting. No bail. They're like, nope, you're not getting out. Sorry. I had enough money where I could hire my own lawyer. And when it comes to criminal lawyers, they don't really care if you're paying them in 20s or a bank transfer. <laughs> like, as long as the money is there, they're just like, whatever. So I hire this guy who's like a very, very good lawyer. And not that it matters, uh, but you had gotten that much money from drug dealing, correct? Yeah. yeah. So you're paying yeah. him with drug dealing money. Yes. Just Which kind is funny. <laughs> very common, actually. Like, way more common than people would like to believe. But yeah. So he comes to visit me for my first lawyer visit and he sits down and he says, okay, well, we have an issue here. And I said, what's the issue? And he said, well, because of your previous charge, you're looking at a felony DUI. And I said, huh? And he said, yeah, it's a felony DUI. So that means that it's a mandatory minimum of a year and a day in prison. And I said, okay, well, you know, don't want to do that. And he said, okay, well, you know, we'll see what we can do. And so he, like, goes back and forth with the prosecutor, gets it down to one count of DUI, one count of reckless driving, you're in jail. And, I mean, at this point, I'd been out for, I was 21 going on 22, so I'd been out for seven, eight months at this point. I go back in for another year, and while... I am in there. A couple things happen. Number one, the Oxycontin epidemic really hit Seattle hard. Hmm. A lot of my friends started getting addicted. People were now dealing in heroin and all sorts of things. It, it, things had gotten a lot more serious. And while all that's going on, I'm just, I, you know, I need to, I need to make a change. I don't know what that change is, but I need to do something. So the year goes by. I did the majority of it in general population. I did get in work release again towards the end by filing a bunch of motions and getting myself into it. I get out pretty much right after I get out. I'm with one of my friends when he gets murdered during a drug deal gone bad. I'm like in the car when it happens. What? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was real bad. Was he shot? Yeah, and I was like, like, I'm pretty lucky I didn't get hit because of where he was shot, but like, I, I got some of the, the spray. Oh my god, that's it. literally yeah, a story it in itself. Holy shit. Pretty traumatizing. So, that happens. A couple other things happen that are similar. I have a few friends overdose and die. I have another friend that gets shot like seven times. And while I'm not to the same degree I was before... I'm still wrapped up in the drug business at this point. I'm like, you know, mostly just like 
kind of middlemaning stuff where I'm connecting people together and then they're like giving me a hundred bucks here and there, like whatever. Yeah. And I'm working in another restaurant and I'm like, I got to get out of here. And so at this point, I've, I've family down here. So I called them. I said, hey, I need to leave to see all this. And okay, you can come down here and stay on your stand our couch there in San Francisco at the time. I go down and stay with them. I get, I get on my feet. Everything is fine. I get a job in a kitchen. I'm working in kitchens. I get to a point with my culinary career where I am working in Michelin ready restaurants. I take over as head chef of a catering company. Everything was going great. Oh my God. That's sick. Um, yeah. Like it was great. I was like, But, like, at the same time, the food industry is not a good place to be if you're, like, trying to turn your life around and be, like, a productive member of society, so to speak. And so, like, I'm still drinking. I'm still doing a bunch of drugs. And it kind of gets to a point where, like, my mental health hit, like, an all-time low. I, I start seeing a therapist. I get things back together. And then I and I'm, like, dating someone her and I are having serious problems because I'm like at work all the time and we're like getting in fights all the time. And so finally I just decided I'm going to move out of our apartment and break up with her and I'm going to move to Oakland. It's cheaper. I'm going to move over there. So I move over here. I move into my first place and I'm there for like a year or two. Nothing interesting really happens. And I'm like still in restaurants Move to another place, meet a new girl, we move in together, little time goes by. She has a psychotic break one night because she was unmedicated, bipolar disorder, stabs me in the face with a broken wine glass, which, if you can see that scar... I mean, you'll be blurred for this, so it doesn't really matter, but yeah, I can see Well, no, I know, but yeah. Yeah, for me. So... Yeah, so so she that happens. So like I obviously break up with her, move out. I move into another house that is now like in I don't know how familiar you are with Oakland, but it's in an area that is like it, deep east Oakland. It is basically where like every rapper that's from the Bay Area is from or talks mm-hmm. about. It's a rough area. Lots of shootings. Lots of drugs. But it's like. I can afford to live out there. And so I move in. I start becoming friends with a lot of the neighbors. And, you know, most of them are, like, selling drugs or, like, doing other things. And one of them actually ends up moving into the basement room in this house that I'm renting. And we're, like, hanging out all the time and hanging out with everyone in the neighborhood. We're, like, just kind of, like, doing like, hood rat shit all the time. You know, just, like, sitting on the porch drinking beer. Just lighting fireworks, selling little bits of drugs here and there, whatever. And I'm, like, starting to get back into this pattern again. I'm just like, ah, shit. And so this time I decided, well, I need to get out of the food industry. It's not working for me. And so I go and I get a job at the airport. And... At the airport, I'm, like, unloading planes, and I'm, like, doing all this stuff, and it's really, like, cool work. There's, like, planes landing, like, feet from me all the time. It's really interesting work. And so I'm there for a little bit, and I'm, like, hanging out with my friends outside of work, and there's this one night that we're all hanging out, and 
I mean, these guys are all carrying guns all the time because, like, it's like that out there. And it's like, you know, if you've grown up there, you've been there your entire lifetime, there are people that you don't get along with. Everyone has guns. Like, you have to have one, too, or else, like, you're probably going to get shot. So we're, like, all hanging out in the front yard one day, and this police car drives by really slow. And then it gets to the end of the street, and it starts turning around again. And this guy I'm hanging out with says, oh, I'm on probation. I'm not supposed to have this gun. And so he takes it, and he's, like, trying to put it in the back of my pants so that if the cops come up, like, they're not going to search me because I'm, like, the one white guy. And uh, while he's doing that, I'm, like, trying to stop him. And while I'm trying to stop him... And by the way, the cop has already passed at this point. They're gone. While I'm trying to stop him, it goes off. And I no. get shot in the back. I get shot in, like, the back of my leg. And it goes in one one side and out the other. Like, didn't hit any arteries. Didn't Nothing crazy. But yeah, but you still got the, shot. Yeah, whatever. But it, like, didn't even, it was, it, it didn't hurt. It was, like, a very small bullet. We couldn't find the exit wound. And so we were like, oh, shit, it's, like, floating around in my body. So I go to the hospital. The hospital immediately locks down because that's what they do when a gunshot victim comes in. They call the police come. (laughs) They talk to me for a little bit, and I, like, give them some bullshit story because I'm, like, not trying to get my friend in trouble. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I was, like, walking to the store, and there's, like, a shootout, which is, like, something that actually does happen, but... And I was like, and I like got on the ground and it like, what, you know, went in like, like the top of my butt cheek and like came out towards the bottom, like whatever. And they're like, yeah, okay. And they've decided at that point, because of the angle that I had been carrying a gun in the back of my pants and I had tried to pull it out and shot myself. So then they did a little search of my record saw that I was a violent felon. He, like, goes on my Facebook and sees that I, like, have all this, like, leftist propaganda on my Facebook. Decides that I am, like, stockpiling arms to raise a leftist militia in East Oakland. I don't know any of this is happening, though. Like, I think I'm in the clear and, like, everything's fine. So I got to work one day and I'm, like, at... And, like, I started work at 3 in the morning. I got off at, like, 10 in the morning. So I got to work... It's like 7 a.m. My phone is just like ringing off the hook. And I'm like, what is going on? So finally I pick up the phone and I'm like, hey, what's up? And it's my next door neighbor. And he is like, hey, the police are at your house. And I was like, what are you? I was like, oh, yeah, like maybe they're just there because they like want to ask me more questions. And he was like, no, no, they're in your house. And I was like, what? And he goes, hold on. He goes, no, that's the FBI. And I was like, yeah, and I was like, dude, shut up. And I like hung up on him. And then one of my other neighbors texted me and sent me pictures of like basically what looks like, I mean, it's an armored vehicle, but it looks like a tank in front of my house and a bunch of dudes in like FBI jackets standing out front of my house. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. So... I walk up to my supervisor, who is, like, also from this area that I'm living in. I'm like, hey, dude, my house is getting raided by the FBI right now. I have to go. And he goes, oh, been there. Have a good day. (laughs) And I just, like, laughed. And I'm just like, oh, Jesus Christ. So instead of going home, obviously, because, like, the fucking FBI is in my house, I call 
a girl I've been seeing from Tinder. And as anyone would. Yeah, of course. And I'm like, hey, can I come over? And she's like, sure. So they show up at her house and she's like, what's going on? And I was like, the FBI is raiding my house right now. Fun thing to mention at this point. She is also a lawyer who at this point works for the federal government doing bankruptcy case. And so she's like, you can't be here. I'm a federal government employee. And I'm like, oh, fuck. I'm like, can I use your phone? Because I have my phone turned off. Because I'm like, they have to be like tracking my phone or something. I'm like, can I use your phone? She's like, sure. And so I like find a lawyer who handles federal level cases. And I like get his address. I'm going to go see him. I like, call him and I'm like, hey, the FBI is like at my house right now. Can I come see you? And he was like, yeah. So I leave. I turn my phone on. I plug in the address. I get six blocks away and get pulled over by five cop cars. Guns drawn. Like get out of the car. Put your hands on your head. Walk backwards. Like the whole deal. And I'm just like, okay. So they get me... In the car, they bring me down for questioning. I'm, like, sitting in the interrogation room, and the FBI agent in charge of the case comes in. He said, hey, so do you want to tell me what happened on this night? And I said, do you have the transcript from what I told the police officers at the hospital? And he said, yeah. And I said, then no. And he said, well, do you want to talk about this? And I said... No. And he said, well, if you don't talk to me about this, you're going to jail. And I said, then take me to jail. And so he took me to jail and I like luckily had a very good lawyer who talked to the prosecutor, like kind of gave him the down low on what had really happened. He was like, well, yeah, that's fine. But like this guy's a felony. He's not even supposed to be in the presence of firearms. So they ended up charging me with like possession of a concealed weapon which was like a misdemeanor and made me go to like 60 AA meetings for some reason (laughs) and now it's like getting expunged and like everything's fine so now (laughs) after all of that I don't drink anymore which I think is probably the best choice don't do drugs anymore and I'm actually in school to be a medical tech. I'm not going to say what kind because I think I'm going to have enough of an issue with the licensing board already. I don't want them (laughs) finding this podcast. It's been a been a pretty pretty interesting last what I guess 15 years. How long have you been sober for? When did the FBI stuff happen? That happened in 2020 so I've been sober for about two years. Okay that's awesome. Um, Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's like when it really came down to it, I think that was a large part of my problems. The other thing is that I also started going to, I started doing EMDR, Mm -hmm. which as I kind of got into things more, I realized that a lot of like what I was doing and the way I was acting and like the fact that I like kept coming back to the same activities and kept Mm -hmm. like hanging out with the same people. It was like, all PTSD based. It was because it was like, yeah, mental health is great. I actually like got on the correct medications and I'm kind of at the point now where like the depression side of things isn't really an issue. And I've learned enough like coping mechanisms where I don't really need like anxiety medication. I'm able to lead a pretty normal life now and things And you stayed in Oakland. Yeah. So now I live 
in a different part of Oakland. I actually live like right next to the lake, like right, right near downtown. It's like a really pretty area. So different kind of neighbors, different kind of activities happening. I think I'm probably going to stay here forever. And dating a wonderful woman you know and i think the thing that i kind of took away from everything at the end of the day was that i do think that with the first incident there are a lot of things that were unfair and there were a lot Mm -hmm. of things that put me at a huge disadvantage in my life i'm definitely someone who pushes very hard for prison reform and for you know just kind of a rehaul of the justice system because it's obviously not working But I think like more than that, the thing that has been most important for me that I've taken away from all of this is that like taking care of your mental health is so important. I think like the majority of everything after that could have been avoided if Mm -hmm. number one, I had someone identify what was going on with me. And number two, if I had like then, you know, poured myself completely into that, like I don't think I would have had to deal with any of that other stuff. For me, that's kind of been the kind of light bulb moment from all of this. I don't know if you know my last question, but what is your favorite food spot? So I'm going to do, I might, if I could do two. Please go for it. I'd like to. Okay. So one is in San Francisco. One is in Oakland. And it's to, it's to cover both price ranges. So mm-hmm. in San Francisco, my favorite place is, it's called Lazy Bear. Mm-hmm. It's a Michigan rated restaurant course menu it's incredible it's in the and you're a real foodie so this is great yeah yeah so it's and i you know it's i think two around 250 a person but it's literally the best meal i've ever had in my entire lifetime so that's my first recommendation what's your order at that first place or is it prefix it's prefix it's a set menu the second place is in oakland and it is right by my old house and it is called Taqueria El Paisa. That's because another one opened up and their business wasn't under that name. And so they had to like change their business name to like some like weird iteration. It's hilarious. But anyway, and at that place, uh, I would recommend getting the Al Pastor tacos or the, the shrimp tacos are pretty good too. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and follow the podcast wherever it is you listen to it so that we can bring you more unexpected stories by ordinary people. And if you didn't like the episode, forget what I just said and just please don't tell anyone.